This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. The Albanese government is trying to rush its industrial relations changes through Parliament. What will success or failure mean for the economy and your pay packet? Also, Victorians head to the polls in an election which could herald the end of two-party dominance nationwide. But first... Over the next few weeks, about 5 billion football fans will tune in to watch the World Cup, which kicked off last weekend in the tiny Gulf state of Qatar. Maguire does well, and battered in by Saka! I felt kind of depressed that uh, Australia was losing, because it's my hometown. It's the first time an Arab nation has hosted the World Cup. Do we know? To organise the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. But ever since football's governing body, FIFA, awarded the tournament to Qatar in 2010, it's been shrouded in controversy. And the first few days of this World Cup were no different. Mister, you invited the whole world to the... You, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. But Qatar seemed somewhat taken aback by all the scrutiny. I think that they viewed getting the World Cup as kind of a global coming out party. Tommy Vitor is a podcaster and a former spokesperson for Barack Obama. He co-hosts a new podcast on the World Cup called World Corrupt. A lot of countries saw the 2008 Beijing Olympics. They saw the image that projected of China to the world and they thought, I want that too. Uh, And also I think Qatar has uh, looked uh, at its neighbours in Dubai with a bit of envy because Dubai is this big international business empire, uh, this modern, impressive city that everyone wants to visit on for for tourism, go on vacation there, etc. And so they thought, you know, soccer could be a way to burnish their reputation to the world. So they clearly wanted to put themselves on the world stage, but uh, Qatar is obviously in the middle of a desert for a start. Now, you've made a podcast called World Corrupt about the corruption behind this World Cup. Going right back to Qatar's bid, where did the rot set in? I think, unfortunately, the rot has been a part of FIFA for many, many decades. There have been senior leaders within the FIFA organization that have either been a part of corruption or turned a blind eye to corruption for many, many years. Uh, And so it's not entirely clear. Like, no one has reported on, you know, a specific incident of this person bribed that person to get the World Cup to Qatar, but they've more pointed to the confluence of events that make it such a bizarre choice for a host city. Like, there is no soccer tradition in Qatar. They had none of the infrastructure you would need to host a World Cup. I think they had to build eight stadiums. It's 40 degrees Celsius in the summer, which meant that they had to shift the timing of the World Cup from summer to the winter. So it just didn't make sense on any level. But there are all these ways that, you know, Qatar has poured money into football over the years. So how did they actually get the World Cup with with such problems, such issues, I guess, the the desert, the, the lack of stadia and all the rest? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, but basically what they had to do was to get 22 members from FIFA to vote for them or a majority of those members to vote for them. And exactly how you do that is a brand of, you know, personal politics, soft power, some would argue corruption, but they managed to make it happen. And, you know, the, the most telling recent example is the former FIFA president, a guy named Sepp Blatter, has finally found religion on this issue. And he said that awarding Qatar was a mistake. And he has basically alleged that there was pressure from Nicolas Sarkozy, then the president of France, to give France's vote to Qatar because Qatar had just purchased, you know, 14 plus billion dollars worth of French airplanes. So that's an example of the kind of deal making horse trading that led to this World Cup being in Qatar. Right. So Qatar wins the World Cup, but since it has, it's really been shrouded in controversy about the deaths of migrant workers, about the huge environmental impact of the tournament. Your podcast looked into the human rights costs. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think what we found was real concern over the fact that in Qatar, uh, women are treated as second-class citizens. Uh, in Qatar, uh, LGBTQ people can be thrown in prison uh, for same-sex relationships. And then, you know, I think the real scandal that is specific to this World Cup itself is, you know, Qatar's population is about 10% citizens and then 90% foreign workers. And those foreign workers are the ones working all the construction jobs. They're building the hotels, they're building the stadiums, they're building the new metro. And the Guardian newspaper in the UK pulled together a bunch of data sets and they found that 6,500 migrant workers had died since Qatar was awarded the World Cup in 2010. And now we cannot say that those deaths were directly tied to jobs working on World Cup infrastructure, but it seems quite likely that many of them were. So that is really the big scandal here. So has all the scrutiny, all the attention on these issues prompted any change, do you think, either in Qatar or FIFA itself? In Qatar, there has been some progress. They have made some changes, at least on paper, to improve their labor practices. And I think they do need uh, deserve credit for that. Although, you know, making sure you implement those laws is a longer term effort. FIFA, on the other hand, has shown no real remorse, no real progress. I mean, they say that going forward, human rights and labor rights considerations will be part of the process for when they choose hosting duties. But if you look at, you know, the response this week from uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino, who's just been unbelievably defensive. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Who has penalized clubs if they wanted to protest or you know speak their minds about certain issues. He's asked them basically to focus on football. It doesn't seem like FIFA has any interest in reforming itself. So how do you think we should judge this World Cup against the long list of other tournaments held in places with bad records on corruption, human rights and the like? Uh, it's a good question. I I'm mindful of the people who say it's unfair to just single out Qatar when, you know, the Olympic hosting committee has award Olympic bids to places like China or Russia. And, you know, we've all seen what's happened with the Russians, you know, in the invasion of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. That said, I just think viewers need to be aware of these issues. They need to be aware of the fact that migrant laborers built the stadiums that we're all watching these games get played in. 
Right. So now that the tournament has started, many of the issues that you mention have been kind of washed away by the coverage itself. And there's even a term for this, sports washing. Is that a deliberate strategy, do you think, being used by some countries that have less than perfect records on some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that's been happening for a while. Uh, and I think we are just now starting to talk about it. I think one really glaring example in hindsight is Gazprom, the big state-owned Russian oil and gas company, sponsored teams in the German Bundesliga for years. And I think people just kind of got used to seeing the Gazprom name everywhere. Well, now Gazprom is part of the Russian effort to cut off oil and gas flows to Europe as part of a you know a, an effort to extort them and 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 support for Ukraine in the war. So, you know, you can see how sports washing really can influence all of us if we're not careful. And I think you're also seeing it uh, from Saudi Arabia, for example, buying Newcastle United or launching the Live Golf Tour as an effort to distract everybody around the world from the brutal murder of a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. So I think it's good that we're all talking about it. It's not great that it's a trend that seems to be increasing. So even with all the focus on on the football itself, there have been a number of controversies, you know, since the, the, the matches actually got underway. Reporters threatened with having their cameras smashed. But you can break the camera. You want to yeah, break the camera? Okay, no, you break the camera. You, okay. The camera. Yes. A snap alcohol ban. Where's the beer? Do you have any beer? We need beer! A row over rainbow armbands um, and Iranian soccer players refusing to, to sing the national anthem, all those kind of issues which have kind of put more pressure, if you like, on, on Qatar and, and this bid. So do you think Qatar's got value for money? Has it been worth it? It's a great question. I don't think we'll know until the tournament is over what the, the final verdict is. I do think they wanted this bid, they got it, and they were completely unprepared for the amount of scrutiny that came their way. And they're very angry about it and very defensive about it. I think they probably, Qatari officials feel like it's unfair They'll point to the fact that the treatment of LGBT workers is spotty all around the globe. They'll point to the fact that the the labor practices in Qatar, the kafala system, is something that exists all around the Gulf. That's fair context, but I don't think that means we should look away from these wrongdoings. You know what I mean? I, I, I think what we can't do is fall into a practice called whataboutism, which is when someone criticizes you for something you're doing that's wrong. And your response is simply, well, what about what the Russians are doing? What about what the Chinese are doing? Again, that's all fair context, but that doesn't mean it's okay for them to abuse these workers now. That's Tommy Vitor, a co-host of a World Cup podcast called World Corrupt. One of Anthony Albanese's core election promises was to lift wages. And he's now trying to rush through laws by the end of the year that aim to do just that. We know there are always those who say that any improvement in workers' pay will see the sky fall in. They say it every time, and they are wrong every time. The government's controversial industrial relations bill passed through the lower house earlier this month. Eyes 80, nose 56. But with just one more sitting week left in Parliament, Labor's yet to strike a deal in the upper house, with the independent senator David Pocock holding the deciding vote. At the moment, I couldn't hand on heart vote for the whole thing. You know, there's a lot of moving parts, and we've got to get it right. You know, the government is saying that they want this all passed by Christmas. It's been so rushed. 
The government says its industrial relations bill will push up wages at a time of rising costs. When you look at the name of the bill, secure jobs, better pay, that's why we support it. But it's unpopular with business groups and the opposition who argue it'll usher in a new era of toxic industrial relations. David Crowe is the chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's a really extensive bill, actually, David. There's a lot of moving parts to it. There's been a lot of debate about multi-employer bargaining, but that's not the only part of the bill. A lot of the bill actually delivers on things that the uh, government went to the election on, things like gender equity, making that a bigger part of Fair Work Commission decisions and looking at things that matter in workplaces such as removing the ability to have secrecy clauses in enterprise agreements so people can't talk about what pay they get. You know, if an employer tries to impose a rule on workers that says you can't talk about your pay with your colleagues so you all know how much each other gets, that's just not going to be allowed. So there are many different parts of the bill. Of course, we're at a point now where the big argument is about the new thing that's in the bill, the thing that wasn't explained at the federal election, and that's multi-employer bargaining. That idea came up in August, and then it went to the job summit that the government held in early September, mm. and then it got endorsed as an idea to incorporate into this bill. It's one part of the bill, but it's certainly the dominant part of the bill in terms of the public debate now. Right. So it's a very big bill. Most of it is supported, but this issue of multi-employer bargaining is the big sticking point. Yeah. Explain what it is and why it's so controversial. It's controversial because for many years, I guess, employers have been so resolutely opposed to the idea of what they used to call pattern bargaining. You come up with one enterprise deal with one company and then it gets applied to all companies in that industry. What happened in uh, August is that a debate began ahead of the job summit that the government held and Sally McManus from the ACTU came out in an interview with me and with others and said, look, we want to see a debate on this idea of multi-employer bargaining. It's not the old style of pattern bargaining, but it's got some similarities and employers don't really like it much. But it's the idea that a union could go to several different employers in the same industry and seek out similar terms and conditions and, and an enterprise bargaining agreement that can work for all of those companies in that sector. Now, when Sally McManus put this forward in August, they were really thinking about industries like healthcare, like childcare, aged care. And a big theme here was the fact that in these industries, and they're feminised industries, a lot of women in these industries, and they're on relatively lower pay than other industries. And here was an idea that could help those workers get better pay and conditions across the sector. So this was the idea, and it did gain traction at the job summit. And then there was a really pivotal moment where after canvassing this, there was an objection from some of the industry groups. Others were you know, not so dead against it. And then Tony Burke, the employment minister, on the podium at that job summit, summed up the meeting and said, look, this is an idea that we will take forward. Yeah, so it clearly shifts the balance of power a little toward the workers because of strength in numbers. Does that inevitably lead, in your mind, to more strikes? I don't think it's possible to say that it definitely leads to more strikes. It depends on the terms of the agreement and the way in which those negotiations are conducted. I think it's possible to argue that there's a risk of more powerful strikes, more uh, strikes with more far-reaching implications, because if you've got an industrial agreement that starts to be negotiated across an entire industry, then you do get the potential for a, a breakdown in negotiations that affects not just one employer, 
but multiple employers in that sector. Right. So what of employers? What are their main concerns here? We, we've covered strikes, but obviously there are other costs that they would have to pay if this form of enterprise bargaining does succeed in, in lifting wages. Some of the employers are just totally against it because they don't want multiple employers to have to be, I guess, negotiating altogether with one union in their industry. And one of their concerns is that, yes, uh, in theory, this could be good for some of those low-paid industries like childcare, aged care. But what if it was applied to the mining industry? What if it was applied to the transport sector, to trucking and things like that? But we're also at a point where there's a lot of argument about the detail of how it would work. And remember, it hasn't even got to the Senate yet. It gets there next week for those really crucial final days of debate over the fine print of the law. Right. So there could be some long and intense days right at the end of the parliamentary sitting calendar, as is often the case, as you well know. Labor needs the backing of independent Senator David Pocock. What are they doing to win him over? They've been pretty good to him on a number of fronts. For instance, one of the big issues for David Pocock is territory rights. He's an ACT senator. He wants the restoration of the rights of the ACT and the Northern Territory to decide their own issues on things like euthanasia. That's going to be debated. That's going to be decided before the end of the year. And so that's a win for David Pocock. But on this issue, he's got serious concerns about the speed with which it's all being decided. And I think that that's a reasonable point because... It's going to be decided by December 1. The time from the introduction to the final vote in the government's view will be five weeks if they get their way. That's Mm. a very short span of time for something this complex. Mm. So as the pressure builds and as the intensity builds, the RBA Governor Philip Lowe has thrown something into the mix. He's warned about the risk of wages growth pushing up inflation further and damaging the economy. How much wages growth is too much. Uh, he wasn't so specific about about what that could mean. But I do think he's really amplifying a debate that has been running at a low level about are we getting into a wages and inflation spiral? If we've got inflation running about 7% or possibly more and possibly being higher for longer in the view of the Reserve Bank, if the objective now is to make sure wages are growing in real terms and are going to be higher than inflation, the warning from the Reserve Bank governor is very clear that that's only going to make inflation worse. That's a difficult message for the government because it wants to be able to promise workers an increase in their real wages. But as we know from the budget forecasts, that's not going to happen until late 2024. It might even be 2025. No, it's not easy. And I mean, that's really the the key point in all this really, isn't it? You know, how will this bill or even will this bill actually push up wages So the government can keep that promise. A lot of it depends on how the unions prosecute these claims. If we do end up with a a law that enables multi-employer bargaining, a lot depends on how the unions will then use that new power. Uh, Will they use it wisely through the course of 2023 and 2024? If they do, then you can end up with a situation where Labor can say, we've delivered. We told people we would pass a law to help with wages and we're doing that. We've done it. But there is a risk that unions will go very hard, you'll end up with industrial action and you get a falling out. I mean, that is a scenario. You've got the risk in the way these laws are applied. I often think that coalition was undone by work choices. One way in which they were undone in the final years of the Howard government when they passed the work choices law was the way in which employers then applied that law. 
to get as much as they could at the expense of workers and at the expense of unions. That really hurt John Howard in government because of the way in which those laws were then used after he thought that he'd passed the industrial relations reforms that he really wanted. Labor has to be aware of a, a similar scenario on the other side of the debate. That's David Crow. He's the chief political correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. He's the longest serving premier in Australia and the most recognisable. And whatever you think of Daniel Andrews, it's likely you hold a pretty strong opinion, especially since the onset of the pandemic. Well, Victorians are heading to the ballot box to decide whether Daniel Andrews deserves a third term in power or whether it's time to hand the reins over to the Liberal National Coalition, led by Matthew Guy. Daniel, your government has broken the health system. You've had eight years. Now I intend to fix the damage you've done to it. We have a positive and optimistic plan. I don't make popular decisions, particularly in crises. I make the right decision. Daniel Andrews is the most larger-than-life figure in Victorian politics since the era of Jeff Kennett in the 1990s. Paul Strangio is a professor of politics at Monash University. But his dominance of the Victorian scene and his prominence, and that prominence even extends, I think, beyond the boundaries of Victoria, was, of course, accentuated by the pandemic crisis. That was a time when his leadership became subject to a sharp polarisation, and that polarisation is still there. It hasn't completely dissipated. People have very strong opinions of him. I think the Liberal Party's banking on the view that there's this wellspring of antagonism. I'm not sure if that's not confined largely to a noisy minority, and most Victorians have a more measured view of Andrew saying good and bad, but certainly that's what the Liberal Party's banking on, that there is this hostility there. Yeah, and I think they're also banking on a bit of history, as a few people have been pointing out, similarities in the political landscape to 1999 when Jeff Kennett lost power in a massive upset to, to Labor's Steve Brax. Mm. Why is that comparison being made and, and what makes this election different to 99? Well, largely because, again, you have the very strong, some would say authoritarian leaders. In 1999, of course, Kennett was undone by voters in rural regional Victoria, um, which really hadn't been picked up in the polling. I don't think there's the same sort of hidden vote out there this time. What we're going to see instead is a whole lot of elections within elections. It's going to be played out in different ways, Labor versus independence in the west of Melbourne, the Liberal Party versus independence in affluent inner city seats, Labor versus the Greens. So a whole lot of cross-currents going on, and that brings a level of volatility and unpredictability. But certainly if we go by the published polls, there's no evidence of one thing at least, that the Coalition probably can win this election. Mm. Labor can be reduced to minority government perhaps, but very little is to show that the Coalition can win. Nationally, some people are trying to frame this as a referendum on lockdowns. 
But it's much more than that, obviously. What are the big local issues that are working to determine the outcome here? Both parties have fought the election around two main policy areas. That's the health system, uh, Victoria's ailing health system. Daniel Andrews points out that Victoria is certainly not alone in having a struggling health system post-COVID. The other thing has been cost of living. Both sides have tried to provide some cost of living relief to the public. How much they can really do in that space is arguable, but polls have shown that's actually the key concern of Victorians at the moment. Beyond those policy focus, what's really been bubbling up, though, is issues about accountability and integrity. Both sides have had problems with that during the campaign. References to our independent broad-based anti-corruption commission, both sides have got that issue, and it's shown that Victorians have a low level of trust in either side. Mm -hmm. And as you say, a, a very complex battleground, so many different fights happening in so many different seats we saw the Teal candidates sweep through the federal election and a big showing for the Greens then too. What are we expecting the independents to do and, and the crossbench this election? If I was a betting man, and I'm not really, but the crossbench will certainly swell in size. There are four Teal candidates. The expectations are that at least one of them will win. I don't think they've had the same traction as they had at the federal election or the same prominence. Climate change probably doesn't have the same traction as a state-based issue as it did in the federal election. And the local Victorian Liberal Party has tried to neutralise climate change as an issue by signing up to emission reduction targets. I think it's, again, its integrity is the real issue where the grist for the mill for the Teal candidates. But it's not just um, the Teal candidates. You have, as I said, you've got this really interesting phenomenon now of independence in some of what were previously safer, safest Labor seats in the, in the west of Melbourne, where, again, that's partly driven by anger about lockdown, but partly the view that Victoria has neglected those areas and services haven't kept pace with growth. And then one more leg to the independent challenge is in regional Victoria, where the coalition is facing quite significant um, opposition from independents in a couple of key seats. Yes, the, the coalition there hasn't won a lot of elections in the last couple of decades. What would another loss, as uh, many of the polls are pointing to, mean for the Liberal Nationals there in that state? The Liberals have now struggled in Victoria now for four decades, effectively. The Liberals, I think, really have baked in image problems. They have a real problem, in particular with younger voters, and as the baby boomers are fading out of the electorate, um, this problem is looming more and more for the Liberal Party. It struggles to speak to the diversity of Melbourne. And if they don't make much progress in this election, with all the advantages they've, they've had with the government battered by COVID, I think there will be a real crisis for the Victorian Liberal Party and where they go from here, issues about their identity, their philosophical outlook. 
again, what's happened in this election, they've had controversies over candidates, which seems to reveal this darker underbelly of ultra-conservatism. Matthew Guy has tried to project as a moderate in this campaign, but again, what seems to bubble to the surface is this ultra-conservative, as I said, underbelly. That's Paul Strangio. He's a professor of politics at Monash University. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week if you liked what you heard. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson.